Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 634 with Don Miller. Don is going to share some brutal, candid truths about how to advance your career. You don't need a fancy title or degree, but you do need to adopt some core fundamental business principles. So you'll learn one, the critical skills an MBA does not teach you. Two, the harsh truth every professional must accept to succeed. And three, how to craft a compelling business case. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash F634. And this might be a great episode to remind you about our gold nugget email summaries. Don dropped a lot of truth. You might be furiously taking notes. Well, we take those notes for you with the gold nuggets, which provides a summary wisdom write-up of the guest's insights in an email you can read in about three minutes. If you're reading every word, you can skim it faster. If you like, we do some nice selective bolding to make it easier for you skimmers. And if you sign up for the Gold Nuggets, you also unlock the vault of all 634 guest summary Gold Nuggets. So that's the scoop on those. And here's the scoop on Don. Donald Miller is the CEO of Business Made Simple at businessmadesimple.com, an online platform that teaches business professionals everything they need to know to grow a business and enhance their personal value on the open market. He's the host of the Business Made Simple podcast and the author of several books, including the bestseller, Building a Story Brand. He works and lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife, Elizabeth. Big thanks to Don for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Don. Don, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I am excited to talk about your latest work, Business Made Simple. And one of your theses is that uh, we don't so much need a college degree or bachelor's or MBA for career success. And that's actually your own story personally. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, perhaps I have a chip on my shoulder, but <laughs> I grew up really poor and mom wasn't home till about 7 p.m. And so, you know, just learned bad habits and didn't didn't pay much attention in school. So it wasn't until, gosh, I bet I was 25 or 26 that I even discovered that I wanted a career. You know, I sort of felt sorry for myself as my friends went off to college and then thought, well, I'm gonna have to go back to college and figure this out. But a guy happened to give me a job in the warehouse of a publishing company and I was just going to wait a year and then go to school because I had moved states and was going to get residency. Within four years, I was president of the publishing company and just discovered that 
that I, I had a real, you know, I had a knack for business like some people do. And it, it happened to be a publishing company. And so I was w- interacting with authors. And so I thought, well, I want to write my own book and wrote a book. And that book ended up being on the New York Times bestsellers list for about a year. So I left the publishing company and started just being a memoirist for a long time. And then about the time they wanted me to write my eighth memoir, I realized that if you write your eighth memoir, you're a clinical narcissist, you know? And and so (laughs) I just wanted to be a regular narcissist, not a clinical narcissist. So I switched gears and and actually wrote a business book because in order to be an author, I had to start my own little private enterprise and I had run a publishing company. So I wrote a book about storytelling and how to clarify your business's story. And that book ended up selling half a million copies. And suddenly I had 30 employees and we scaled this business to, you know, we'll do about 20 million this year. And we did that in about five years. And I, I realized that the whole time, and I think your listeners will really understand this, the whole time we were scaling the business, it was just chaos. It was just organized chaos. And the more people I met who had business degrees and more people I hired who had business degrees, none of them knew how to fix it. And what I've realized now is that from zero to 10 million, it's basically chaos anyway. You have to just sort of lead and guide the chaos. So I wrote Business Made Simple as almost the blue collar version, almost the trade school version of business school, where at business school, you'd go and you'd read a white paper on trade with China. You'd study a Volkswagen ad from 1973 and how to reach suburban housewives five decades ago. And none of that, none of it you use when you actually get a job in the business world. In fact, business degrees, I'm convinced, really just get you an interview. It's the bottom rung of the ladder. At least they get you on the ladder, which is great. But then you have to figure out how to climb the ladder. And what we found was the hidden staircase. I mean, we, we found that there were a certain order of skills that you had to develop as your company got bigger. And I turned around and then started explaining those to people in short five-minute videos. 100,000 people signed up for those videos and realized, you know, if I took a year and really organized this well, it could be better than a business degree. And so the book now, it it comes out January 19th, and it's called Business Made Simple. It's 60 daily entries. You pour a cup of coffee, you read the daily entry, and then you get a video that day in your email box. And it will literally teach you how to uh, negotiate a contract, how to sell, how to give a speech, how to manage a a group of people, how to run an execution framework. It'll teach you how to clarify a message, how to create a marketing sales funnel, how to create mission statement and guiding principles. My favorite is the first 10 entries are just the character of a value-driven professional. What characteristics do people have who tend to climb the corporate ladder very, very quickly and make a lot of money? So I love this book. It's the book that I wish I had when I was 22 years old, right when I realized I should have gone to college like my, my friends. And now I handed out to college grads saying, here's what you should have learned when you, would, when you paid all that money for school. Okay. Well, there's so much I want to dig into. So The Hidden Staircase is a, a particular set of skills. Is that fair? It is. Yeah, I think it like is. Liam Neeson. And- <laughs> That's right. Less deadly. Less people okay. are dead at the end of it. More people uh, have money at the end of it. But yeah, I really think it is. And it's it's actually amazing to me that in MBA programs, they aren't teaching this. Uh, they're not teaching mission statement and guiding principles. So how, how do you actually align a team? How do you get a team to say, we're going to align around a mission here? Uh, they don't teach you to clarify a message unless you go to Vanderbilt University because they actually teach my framework in the Vanderbilt MBA program on how to clarify a message. 
They don't mm-hmm. teach an execution framework. I mean, every company that passes about maybe $3 million, they need an execution framework. You need a series of meetings that you have at the same time on the same day, sometimes every day, sometimes once a week and sometimes once a month, with a worksheet that you fill out and you usually stand for these meetings. And at the end of that meeting, usually in the morning, everybody has complete clarity about what their five priorities are for the day. And they are kept accountable to meet those priorities. And then in the fourth quarter, you assess how you did and your compensation package is actually tied to that. You install that execution framework that I talk about in this book into your company and some companies will double in productivity. Okay, excellent. And so then it's just a matter of of, of doing it and, and ensuring then that the right things are getting executed and the, and, and the focus remains where it needs to, to go, eh? That's where it is. I, I really think that the majority of succeeding in business is focus and intensity, focusing on the right things, letting go of things that you don't need to focus on, and then intensity, intentionally blocking out the hours to get those things done. But you know, it's easier said than done. You, you literally have to have your entire team on the same page aligned around a mission. It sounds easy, but most people can't get it done. Mm-hmm. Well, to that end, I'd love it if maybe you could share an inspiring story of someone who who dug in and uh, and learned the stuff and, and and saw some cool results from it. Well, you know, the most inspiring story is just our team and what we've done. I've got PhDs on my team. I've got people without a degree. I never ask in the interview whether you have a degree. I ask really one question. How can you make us money? What problems can you solve? If I bring you on this team, how will you make us money? And, and you should see the looks on, especially, you know, the college grads faces or whatever. They've never been asked the question. And yet the whole point of me hiring you is to give you a paycheck that is an investment that you would give me a return on. You know, there's a, the very first entry in the book is about starts the 10 characteristics of what I call a value-driven professional. And the first characteristic is this. They see themselves as an economic product on the open market. And Pete, you know, that sounds probably really coarse and really harsh. Dehumanizing. Dehumanizing. Yeah. And, and I would agree with that. It is dehumanizing. But and the reality is God doesn't see you as somebody with a, an economic price tag on your head. Your, your spouse doesn't see you that way. Your kids don't see you that way. I don't see you that way. Donald Miller doesn't see you that way. The market 100% absolutely sees you that way. It's just a fact. If your skill set involves being able to cut up a potato, put it into a metal basket and dip it into oil for three minutes and pull it up, if that's what you're capable of doing, you've got a $15 an hour number above your head. That's what you are worth. And that's a terrible thing to say, except when you realize that that same person is in control of what that number is. So if they say, okay, well, I know how to deep fry some potatoes, I'm going to learn how to unify a team around a mission statement and guiding principles so that we're all aligned. And then I'm also going to learn a business strategy, how to keep cash flow strong, how to keep overhead light, how to keep products profitable, how to get your marketing engine going, your sales engine going, and how to look at cash flow so that we don't run out of it. And I'm going to master that so that you you all of a sudden have gone from 15 to 25 to 45. And if you can do what I just said at the end of there, you're capable of being a CEO with a little bit of practice. So now you're at $150 an hour. You're actually in control of that. So it's only an offensive statement to say you're an economic product on the open market if you don't have control of the number. And what's, what's amazing is most people don't realize they have control of the number. So when you actually realize that, you start learning the skill sets that allow you to be a good investment. Well, 
you know, how do people actually get rich? Well, the way people get rich is they're a great investment. Our company has gone to about $20 million. We did that in five years. No, no venture capital, no private equity, no bank loans. We've gone to $20 million. How'd we do that? We did that by making other people $200 million. That's the only way you make money is you make somebody else more money or you solve somebody's problem or you increase the amount of time that they have. You decrease their frustration. Uh, you increase their status. Whatever it is somebody's paying you for, if you just promise yourself, if somebody gives me a hundred bucks an hour, I'm going to make them a thousand bucks an hour. If you have that mentality, you will be wealthy. You know, one time an acquaintance came up to me after a speaking gig and he said, Hey, you know, you and I live in the same town. Why don't you fly home with me? And I said, well, what flight are you on? He said, well, no, I have an airplane. <laughs> well, the next morning I get on this $50 million jet with this guy and he, and I'm asking what he does. You know, he's a hedge fund manager and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, this is the life, man. You know, I, I can't imagine ever living like this. And then he said something about, you know, I was flying one of my clients around and they kind of liked this drink and we didn't have that drink on the plane. And so we had to stop and get some, you know, whatever. He was just telling a story. And I realized, oh, he actually has this private, this 50 million private jet because people pay him and he makes them even more money. So now there's a guy with some jumbo jet who's the king of Dubai or whatever, who actually has even more money. And you start realizing that's the key. The key is to be a great investment so that you're giving people a strong return. And so when I wrote this book, what I wanted was you started at whatever you're at. Some of you listening are worth $30 an hour. Some of you are worth $50 an hour. Some of you are worth $12 an hour. You read, you read the first one and you, you become worth about $5 more. And you read the second one, you come around $5 more. You read the third one, you become worth about $5 more if you execute and actually practice these skills in your professional career. And uh, what I wanted was you start this book being worth $15 an hour. You end it worth being $150 an hour if you actually execute the skills that you learn in the book. I wanted to make people worth more money. But the first thing you got to do, if you want to do that, is admit you're actually an economic product. And people who see themselves that way, they tend to make a ton of money on the open market. Okay. Well, let's zoom in to a, a few of these particular skills. Let's say you know, our audience are professionals. If, mm -hmm. if we want to get quantitative, I mean, you know, incomes very widely, but let's just call it 75 grand a year mm -hmm. and maybe a few years out of their, their bachelors. So just to, to paint a picture, maybe half have direct reports and, and, and half do not. I know that's a, it's a wide audience, mm -hmm. but zero in a little bit for us in terms of what is a skill that professionals generally need and is highly valued, and what can we do to get better at it right now? Well, one of the things that you can do, if you have a boss, let's just talk to the folks who have a boss. What you want to do is you go to your boss with an idea and you say, I want to do this. What you really need to do is go to your boss with a business case. And my team members know this. Don't come to me without a business case. And so instead of coming to me and saying, Dom, we really want to launch a new podcast, well, they would come to me and say, Don, we want to launch a new podcast. It's going to hit this demographic. On that podcast, we're going to focus on these three products and only these three products. If people buy these three products, we'll have their email address and we'll upsell them to these other two products. If the podcast does what our last podcast did, we would anticipate that 2% of people listening to the podcast would buy the entry-level item and 5% of those would buy the upsell. So we're talking about about 6.2 million 
We think that that's going to cost about a million dollars to produce. So we should see a profit of about 5.2 million pre-overhead. You start talking like that to your boss and they're going to promote you because almost nobody talks that way. They just go, I think this is a good idea. Let's throw spaghetti at the wall and see if it turns into art. And, and you know, people who understand business get a little bit tired of that. And so that's the sort of thing that this book teaches you to do. You know, if I just flip open this book and I'm, you know, just put my finger down. So I just did it. Put my finger down. You know, there's five pages. This is, this is number three on um, negotiation. Here's a skill that if you don't have a boss or if you do have a boss, it doesn't matter. Almost nobody has taken a course on how to negotiate a contract or negotiate a deal. So let me just give you, give you one thing. The page that I turn to is uh, that you need to understand that there's always something, quote, below the line. So that you're negotiating. It's a package deal. There's this best-selling author that you want to speak at your conference. They're $50,000 to take the stage. There is something that that author wants more than money. And if you actually do a little due diligence, you'll figure it out. For instance, I've done this. I've told a best-selling author that I couldn't afford to bring to one of my conferences. I said, look, I've written a lot of best-selling books. Would you want to spend about four hours together just talking about whatever your next book is about? We can maybe outline some chapters of it, or we can talk about a marketing plan. I can't afford to pay you the $125,000 that you are to take the stage, but I would be able to give you four hours, and, and I think it would be worth your time. The person did it for $25,000. It, it even gets more fun than that. My buddy runs a speaking, uh, a poetry week in San Diego, California, at Point Loma University. He wanted Billy Collins to come. Now, Billy Collins is my favorite poet. I'm that geeky that I actually have a favorite poet. He's really funny and he's brilliant, but he's probably a hundred grand to come speak. He is like a rock star in the poetry world. He was the poet laureate. He's a professor at NYU, doesn't do very many speaking gigs. So my buddy started Googling around on the internet because he's not going to be able to pay $125,000 to have Billy Collins come. He finds out Billy Collins is an avid golfer. So he goes over to Torrey Pines. He can't get on at Torrey Pines. It's very hard. And he says, I want to get Billy Collins to come speak at my thing. How much would it cost me to give a round of golf to Billy Collins? Well, this guy sounds like a rock star. You know, we'd give it to him for free. I said, he said, great. So he calls Billy Collins and said, look, I'll give you $40,000 in a round at Torrey Pines. And he comes and he does it. And they raise a ton of money. You know, there's, there's almost always something below the line in a negotiation. We think we're having a financial negotiation, but we are human beings. There's something that people want and value even more than money. And if you can find it, you can negotiate really, really great contracts. Then you go back and you tell your boss you did that. You're going to get another promotion and another raise. When it's time to get a raise, they're going to give you the biggest possible raise. And why? Because you are such a good investment that when we give you a paycheck, we get so much more in return you know, we all do this. If you buy stocks, you, you buy more stocks that are making you more money and you divest of stocks that are losing you money. And in the open market, people are like stocks. They don't want to be, but they are. And the, and the real pros, not the amateurs, but the pros, they really like that. They actually want to be an investment because they know how to get you a return. Yes. Thank you. Well, now I want to hear a lot of things, but let's, let's go with this. Now, what you're putting forward here totally makes mm -hmm. sense to me as a business owner. And I am thinking about, there's an unfortunate reality in many workplaces that meritocracy, for whatever reasons, is mm, broken or limited or slow. 
uh, such that let's say I got a boss and then uh, I do get my performance review and they say, wow, Pete, you were just so amazing. This initiative saved us all this money. Uh, this other product launch was, was so successful and profitable. You are just crushing. It's like, well, thank you very much, boss. I, I appreciate that. And, and they say, and here is your 4% raise for your great performance this year. And so I'm thinking, well, as compared to my the value I gave you last year, it is miles beyond 4% more. And, and then maybe you have the conversation like, hey, you know, it, it seems like I'm doing these things and I'm making this impact. Uh, it would seem appropriate to to increase the compensation. They go, oh, you know, Pete, you know, you're making some sense here, bud. But, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, you know, with COVID or insert excuse, there's a hiring freeze or a budget freeze or a, a pay increase freeze. So, so there's some kind of a policy something that's getting in the way of the beauty of a value created and compensation for that value created to, to flow as it should. How do we deal with that? Well, that's a tough thing, but when you have the skills to make people money, there's just one thing you need to do. You need to actually make a business case for yourself. So you're not going in and asking for a raise or begging for a raise. If you're doing that, the person that you're talking to, the company that you work for, has the leverage. And so what you really want is, is you don't want to compete for the job. You want them to compete for you. And so if they're going to keep you and keep making this money, they're going to have to give you more money. And if they don't, if you really are that good, you are a, everybody here is a economic product on the open market. So you take your skills elsewhere and you charge what you think that you are worth. You know, we have reviews at the end of every year and people get a bonus based on their performance. There are some performers that, you know, they're great. We love them. We give them the most percent. That would be a 5% raise. Uh, Plus, they get a bonus based on whether or not we hit our goals as a company. And and that's it. There are other performers, though. For instance, my marketing director. We called my marketing director in four months before the end of the year and said, look, we want to give you a 20% raise right now. And at the end of the year, we're going to give you your bonus, which is a percentage of your salary, as though you had had that 20% all year long. And, you know, he was baffled. He loved it. Uh, and he said, Don, thanks. This is the two, two of my team members called me and said the same thing. They said, thanks. This is so generous. And I said, listen, you know, I, I hope I'm a generous guy, but, but I want you to understand something. You are so good at making this company money. I have to compete to keep you. I know that some people can come in and get you. And, and I want you to know that. I want you to know you're a rock star. And if I pay you more, maybe you won't leave. Now, there's always somebody, some billionaire who's going to come in and say, I'll pay you some obscene amount of money because I don't care about the money. I can't compete with that person, but I can compete in other ways. You have you, you like your job. You get great time off. Nobody here works really after five unless they want to. You know, it's a great environment. So I compete in other ways besides money, too. But that's where you want to get your boss. And let's say your boss isn't like that. Well, now you've got a resume. You're going to write your resume completely differently. And the resume is going to be, if you invest in me, here's the ways that I can make you money. And not every company needs the ways that you can make you money, but you're going to find the ones that you can. Andrew Grove, who ran Intel for so many years, says that, don't be confused. Every single human being is a company and you sell your services to other companies in exchange for pay. 
Now, I got to tell you also this. We've had plenty of these conversations where somebody comes in and they say that to us. They say, I think I'm worth this. I've made the company this much money. And in turn, we say, you know, we think you're worth a 5% raise. Uh, we don't think you're worth, as an economic investment, you're two years out of college. You don't know how to do this. You don't know how to do that. We're training you. You are becoming more valuable. But I think you have an inflated idea of, of the economic value you're actually worth. If you stay here for two or three more years, I think you'll learn a lot more. You will have more value on the open market. We had one person once who got pretty huffy about that. And they were pretty upset about it. And they said, well, I disagree with you. And we're going to have to have further conversation. Great. In the next conversation, we said, listen, we're not letting you go. You have two months. We want you to find another job. Uh, we're not kidding. We actually think that we, if we're going to pay you what you want to be paid, we can get somebody better with more experience on the open market. And that person said, wait, wait, hold on. I want to keep my job. I really like it here. We said, listen, if you come back, and you turn into two weeks' notice, we're going to be ticked. If you want to stay here for a couple more years, we will train you. You will get some experience that will make you worth more on the open market. And that's what uh, this person decided to do. And that is indeed what actually happened. So you're going to have disagreements. Almost every employee thinks they're worth more than their company does. And almost every company is paying somebody more than what they think the person is worth. They think they're being generous. That tension always exists. But, but here's what I want you to, how do I want you to see yourself? I want you to see yourself as an NBA player negotiating a salary to stay on a basketball team. And you also need to learn what it is that actually makes the basketball team money. You know, I love the example of JJ Watt. He's a football player, of course, for the Houston Texans. This is a losing team. They won four games this year. JJ Watt has paid a hundred million dollars to play football. And when you watch him, he has negotiated. So during the game, they play a certain song, and he dances during the game, before the snap, on this one particular play. Well, why did he negotiate that? Because it gets the crowd riled up, and they start chanting J.J. Watt. It puts butts in seats. It sells J.J. Watt jerseys. It makes the football team money. So not only is he, is he great as a defensive player. By the way, he's a defensive player making $100 million. He figured out how he can make the football team money. You know, he also negotiated that nobody on the sidelines can wear a red baseball cap except for him. So when he comes off the field, the offensive on the field, he takes his helmet off, he puts a red baseball cap on. Do you know why he does that? Well, then people could pick him out like, oh, that's him. That's JJ. It's exactly it. So the camera can find him. He has figured it out. Now, HEB is a grocery store in the Houston, Texas area that paid him another $100 million to be their spokesperson. So he's saying, buy your eggs at HEB. Now, what's he doing? He figured out how to make the Houston, Texas money, and he figured out how to make a grocery store money, and he's worth $200 million. That is called a value-driven professional. Now, if the, the team doesn't want to keep him, he can go to the Pittsburgh Steelers and say, look, this is how much money I make the Houston Texans in jersey sales. When I show up on NFL commercials, when I when I agree to do at least one interview after the game, this is how much money. It's not just about football. And so as a value-driven professional, if you're on the marketing team, you're going to say, listen, I, I built a sales funnel that it looks like made about $4 million. That didn't exist before I got here. I also do a, a segment on the company's podcast that goes on every other episode. The leads from that has turned into another $4 million. So that's $8 million. You guys paid me $45,000 last year. I made you $8 million in value. 
I think I'm an $85,000 a year person. But before you say no, let me give you three more ideas that I want to implement that I think will make you another $4 million. That's how you negotiate. You don't come in and say, look, I show up on time. I don't smell bad. I comb my hair. I make sure I pull my old lunch out of the fridge so it doesn't rot. I think you owe me 5%. Nobody's interested in that conversation. All right. Thank you. Well, let's shift gears a smidge. So we have that, that core economic value delivery principle there. Right. You said that your first several installments of videos and, and pieces of the book are all about character. Yeah. Lay it on us. Well, I kind of wondered, I read these books about character and it's, you know, it's talked about things like integrity. It talks about things like work ethic and not that I don't think that stuff is important. Integrity is incredibly important. But, but in my opinion, integrity is a core value of being a human being, not, not of just being a professional. We have, we have places for people who don't have integrity. We call them prison. So you can't work here unless you have integrity. You can't work here unless you tell the truth. So I started thinking, okay, what are the, what are the ways that real value-driven professionals, people like J.J. Watt, what are the ways that they see themselves? And, I, and I, um, amazingly, I got to meet Barack Obama when I was in a White House task force. I got to spend time with Michelle Obama. I got to spend time with members of the judiciary, lawmakers, NFL coaches, professional athletes, professional musicians, you know, at the highest level. And I was looking for what do these people have in common? And the 10 core characteristics uh, are very interesting. The first we've talked about at length, and that is they really do see themselves as an economic product on the open market. The second is that they see themselves as heroes, not victims. So they identify as the hero in the story, not the victim in the story. And that's, that's really critical. Uh, at, at no point will any of these people start feeling sorry for themselves. They, uh, heroes don't feel sorry for themselves. They may not like their challenges, but they take their challenges on, and those challenges transform the hero into a better version of themselves. Um, victims suck a lot of energy out of the room, and, and there are actual real victims in the world. I, I don't mean to victim shame anybody, but most of us see ourselves as victims when we're in fact not. My friend Henry Cloud defines uh, victims as somebody who has no way out. And most of the times in my life where I've seen myself as a victim, I actually had plenty of ways out. I was just too discouraged to actually take them. So we have to make that transformation from victim mindset to hero mindset. Um, the third is they know how to de-escalate drama. Drama in the workplace costs people a lot of money. And the reason it costs people a lot of money is because it sucks all the energy into the dramatic employee. And it's that's energy they can't use to make a product or serve a customer. So people who who know how to uh, uh, de-escalate drama, they're actually worth a lot more. Another one is that they accept feedback as a gift. You know, we just interviewed Matthew McConaughey the other day. He loves criticism. He loves it because it makes him a better actor. Number five is they know the right way to engage conflict. You know, the more you rise as a leader, the more conflict you have to deal with. In fact, the more power you actually have in a company, the more time you spent only dealing with problems. And so if you understand how to engage conflict and resolve conflict and the ways to do that, you are going to rise because people hire you to solve problems. And the more problems you can solve, the more money they pay you and the more promotions you get. Another one, day six, this one was tough for me because I, I felt it a lot. 
It was they long to be trusted and respected more than they want to be liked. And leaders who want to be liked or people in companies who want to be liked, they compromise. They don't tell the truth. But people who want to be trusted and respected, uh, they tell the truth. They set very clear expectations and they give people encouragement when they hit those expectations. A lot of people don't like their coach, but they trust and respect that coach to make them a better player. And in my opinion, that's an even stronger bond. Day seven is they have a bias toward action. I'm just going to say it really bluntly. I've read, I've met a lot of really dumb people who are not very intelligent, who are billionaires. And the difference is they take action when other people are still thinking about it. So a bias toward action is a fantastic uh, competitive advantage. Uh, Day eight is they do not choose to be confused. And uh, this is something my business coach taught me years ago. I was, I was thinking about a problem employee and I was going over my problems with them and how I wanted to deal with it. And my coach said to me, he said, Don, you are choosing to be confused. And I said, what do you mean choosing to be confused? He said, step outside yourself and look at the situation and clearly articulate what you need to do. And immediately I said, I need to fire him. He said, Don, you knew it the whole time. You were choosing to be confused because there's something you don't want to do. It's obvious what you need to do. Stop choosing to be confused. Isn't that fantastic? Well, yeah, I'm going to sit with that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what, I get really, I choose to be very confused about whether a cup of ice cream is good before dinner. I mean, before breakfast, I mean, before going to bed. (laughs) I choose to be confused about that all the time. The truth is it's not, right? So day nine is uh, be relentlessly optimistic. People who are relentlessly optimistic, they tend to, to try harder things and not give up when the challenge is greater than they expected. So optimism actually means you fail more than the average person because you try harder things, but you get so delusional about the fact that you can do it, that you keep trying and trying and trying, and you accomplish more than people who don't try. Day 10 is uh, from Carol Dweck, a professor at Stanford, and she says to us to have a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset, and that is believe that you are a human being always changing, transforming, and getting better rather than somebody who is fixed. So never say anything like, I'm bad at math. Really, the way you want to word that is, I've not chosen to study math enough to get very good at it, but of course, I'm capable of being good at math. I just haven't chosen to study math. That's a fixed mindset, I'm bad at math, versus a growth mindset that says I'm perfectly capable of being great at math, I just haven't chosen to study that very much. When somebody sees themselves through the growth lens, they tend to to escalate in their skill sets much, much quicker than those who feel stuck like they were born bad at math. And she wrote a whole book on that, uh, and it's fascinating. It's a fascinating study. In fact, I brought in a a teacher for an entire day for my company just to teach everybody in the company a growth mindset. And we constantly say, we don't know how to do this, but let's all have a growth mindset. And it's led to an enormous success for us. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, well, Don, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. There was a guy who, well, two guys who uh, delivered a bed to our house the other day. And they were in their, their early 20s. One of them had served in the military as we talked to each other and I was helping them with the bed. And we started telling each other stories and those kinds of things. And I said, hey, before you leave, can I just give you a copy of this book, Business Made Simple? And I said, listen, I don't know your story about college, but I didn't, I didn't go to college. What I discovered, though, was a way of making money and being a value-driven professional that allowed me to go around the college system. 
And I wrote it all down in this book. In 60 days, you can be, whether you went to college or not, so much more valuable than almost anybody around you if you just understand and apply these principles. And they looked at me and said, dude, this is amazing because we've just been approached by somebody who wants us to start a business with them by buying a warehouse and we would be delivery people and, and so on and so on. I said, you know, that's a great opportunity. Read this book, take that opportunity. But let me tell you something, learn that for about three or four years and then go buy your own warehouse because you need to own the business. That's the key. And this book will teach you how to run that business, run your, your friend's business and run your own business someday. And I almost got choked up with tears in my eyes walking away because that was me, right? My first job was Pie Pie's Fried Chicken. My second job was delivering Chinese food. My third job was Kmart. My fourth job was Radio Shack. This is talking about somebody without a degree. And then somebody gave me a shot at a publishing company, and I ended up running that company and starting my own company. If somebody would have handed me a Pie Pie's Fried Chicken, this book, I think it might have ignited my entrepreneurial imagination and maybe saved me about 15 years of running around not advancing in my career. It really is the hidden staircase. We're all trying to climb the ladder, but there's a hidden staircase, and I think I've written it down in this book. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? It's from Viktor Frankl. Are you familiar with Viktor Frankl? Mm -hmm. He saved my life many years ago. About 12 years ago, I read Man's Search for Meaning, and, and he saved my life. And I've been working on a new project that won't be out till, till later this year called Hero on a Mission. And that's I'm, my brain is sucking that right now. But what I love about Viktor Frankl is, is Sigmund Freud, at the time Frankl was alive, was going around saying, you know, the dominant desire of man is to pursue pleasure. And about the same time, Alfred Alder was going around more or less interpreting Nietzsche saying, you know, the dominant pursuit of man is the pursuit of power. And Viktor Frankl came along and said, in my opinion, you're both wrong. I think that the dominant pursuit of man is the pursuit of meaning. Women and men want to experience a deep sense of meaning. And when they can't find meaning, they numb themselves with power and pleasure. And I just thought that explains our culture, right? We don't have meaning. And so we eat ice cream and watch Netflix and entertain ourselves and distract ourselves with social media because we don't have meaning. But I, what, what I love about Viktor Frankl is he actually gave us a prescription to experience meaning. And it's existential. It's not, you don't find it in a philosophy book. And in fact, he says you can't find meaning in a book. What you can find is a recipe that will, that if you enact that recipe, that formula, it will give you meaning. And, and the first was find a project uh, that you can build, something that demands action, that takes your time. Find a community of people who care about you or also spend time in nature. In other words, become involved in something outside yourself that attracts you and brings you into uh, uh, out of yourself and, and into a reality that you're not the only person on the planet. And then the third was find a redemptive perspective for your suffering. And what he meant by that is no matter what, what sort of painful thing you go to, you go through, find something in that pain that's actually benefiting you. So maybe it's humbling you, or maybe it's making you more empathetic, or maybe it's building muscle, emotional muscle or physical muscle, whatever it is. And, and if you do those three things, you'll experience a deep sense of meaning. And lo and behold, about 12 years ago, I read that book and started applying what he called logotherapy, a therapy of meaning to my life. And truly, I have not woken up a single day without experiencing a deep sense of meaning. I've woken up really sad. I've woken up really tired. 
I've woken up really angry or frustrated, but never ever without a deep sense of meaning. And I am so grateful for his book. It's been the most uh, eye-opening, helpful discovery of my life. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Well, now could you share a, a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I actually created my own day planner and you can get it for free. It's at heroonamission.com. And I fill out this planner every day and it helps me organize my mind and my time. It's actually a reflective meditative exercise. Uh, I fill out every morning and that has been the key to my productivity. Uh, another thing that I found unbelievably helpful was studying story and story structure. My favorite book on story structure, now it's a 600 page book, typeface smaller than your Bible, is uh, Christopher Booker's The Seven Basic Plots. But really, when you study story, you're studying life, you're studying what matters in life, and you're asking yourself all sorts of questions about what kind of story, not what I want to write, but what I want to actually live. And with Viktor Frankl, the study and the understanding of story structure has been a fantastic tool to, to help me experience more meaning. Oh, thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? You know, if you go to businessmadesimple.com, you can read all about uh, what we're up to. And if you're interested, go on Amazon and buy Business Made Simple. I'm not sure what they're charging for it now, but it should be about 20 bucks. You get the, the 60 videos, but if you forward your receipt from Amazon to this address, book at businessmadesimple.com, I'll send you a free mini course that I created called Zero to Ten. And it's five videos on how I took my company from zero to 10 million. And it's uh, not as hard as, it, as you might think it is to do that, but it's really, really messy. And so uh, I help you kind of make your way through the mess in that course. So you just forward your receipt to book at businessmadesimple.com. You'll get that free mini course. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their job? There are four characters in a story, normally four kinds of characters, hero, victim, villain, and guide. The hero wants something and overcomes challenges. The victim is helpless and exists in the story only to make the hero look good and the villain look bad. The victim doesn't play any other part in the story. The villain is seeking vengeance. And the guide is the wise sage helping the hero win. Now, here's the challenge. Every day, th those four characters exist in story because those four characters exist in you. And all four exist at the exact same time. In any given day, you can catch me playing the hero, the victim, the villain, or the guide. I am convinced that the more we identify as the hero or the guide, the better our life goes. And the more we identify as the victim or villain, the worse our life goes. So if you want to control how your story ends up, spend more time being the hero, more time being the guide, less time being the victim, and less time being the villain, and things are going to go okay. So the challenge is notice which character you are playing from hour to hour throughout the day. All right, Don, this has been a treat. Uh, I wish you lots of luck in, in business that you make it simple and, and life and keep on rocking. Well, thanks so much for the time. It, it really is an honor. I really enjoyed this chat with Don, and, and I like that he's got a point of view and he puts it forward with gusto. And, and, and maybe you found that rankling your feathers a little bit, like I am not a product on the open market. That's not who I am. And indeed, it's not who you are, which you mentioned, in sort of like your fundamental existential core and source of, of value and worth and human dignity. However, in the economic sense associated with the trade of your labors for dollars, that makes a lot of sense in terms of thinking about it in that way 
and what is your capability for creating that value? And then to what extent are you are you capturing it? Are, are you being uh, fairly compensated and, and rewarded? Or might it be time for you to, to look elsewhere? And then to consider the benefits, not just economically, but the other things that are going on in, in your workplace and your experience to see, hey, is this really working for me? And how might I upgrade my situation? Great take from Don. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP634. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.